good. Acts 16. So big overview. We've been walking through Acts since April and the key verse is in chapter one. Chapter one, verse eight explains the whole book. Here's everything you're going to read. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witnesses. And then here's the geography, Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. And we've looked, and as we've gone through verse by verse, we've seen all of those places being touched with the gospel. We've seen God's people being witnesses in Jerusalem first, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So you keep that in mind. That's the big overarching theme of Acts. Recently, we've been looking at Paul. The second half of the book all focuses on Paul. He takes these three mission trips. They call them missionary journeys, where he's gone for anywhere from 18 months to 36 months. And he takes these long trips where he goes to cities where I've never heard the gospel. And he preaches and he establishes churches. We're looking today at the second mission trip, the second missionary journey. If you were here last week, David Scott uh, kicked this off. Uh, Paul is in a place called Philippi, which is in a region called Macedonia. It's in Europe. So this is the first time the gospel has penetrated into Europe. Uh, Philippi is a pretty big city. It's almost exclusively Gentile. It takes 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue, and there's no synagogue in Philippi. So that makes me think there's less than 10 Jewish men in the whole city. And so you've got people that don't know the Old Testament. They don't know Yahweh. That's God's name. They don't know the Jewish people. They for sure don't know anything about promises of a Messiah that's going to come and deliver them and make things right. Last week, we saw the first convert in Philippi was a lady named Lydia, and she most likely held, hosted, led the first church in this region as well in her house. And so what we're going to look at today is two more encounters that Paul has, and now Paul is with Silas, so that's his partner. They've picked up Timothy. You can think of Timothy as an apprentice. He's probably still in his late 20s, early 30s, but he's an apprentice. And then Luke, who wrote Acts, is also part of the mix. So those four guys are in Philippi preaching the gospel, trying to establish a church. They've made a a bit of an inroads with Lydia, and now we're going to see their interactions with two other folks. Uh, Verse 16, once when we were going, so we as Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, we were going to the place of prayer because there is no synagogue, there was a place by a river where people who worshiped God gathered. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these, these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll pause there. So we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke going out to meet these folks who are worshiping God on some level. People who are at least 
aware of the God of the Old Testament, worshiping him on some level. And Paul, that's where he always starts. He always starts with that group of people. So that's where he's going. And there's a girl who's a slave, and she's possessed by a demonic spirit or a python spirit. So that, that's actually it's a literal word. So there's the snake, the python, is associated with the god Apollo in this place called the Oracle at Delphi, D-E-L-P-H-I. And so that oracle, people would go to that oracle to have their future told. Like we have people who would go to a psychic or a medium. So there was this place and they would go to this oracle and they would have their future told. And the python became symbolic of all of that. So that snake became symbolic of this ability to to tell the future, predict the future. And so anyone who had any ability to tell the to, to, to predict the future, to tell people their fortunes, was said to have a python spirit. So that may be what your Bible says, and that's where all of that comes from. But it's demonic. And the, the spirit obviously was able on some level to predict the future because it was making their owners a lot of money. But we know that God is the only one who's omniscient, and he's ultimately the only one who can tell us what's coming. So we have this girl, and she's walking around behind Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, and she's yelling all the time. Super annoying, if you can imagine. You're trying, you're Paul, you're in a place where they've never heard of God, they've never heard of Jesus, they don't know anything about the Old Testament, they don't know anything about a promised Messiah, they don't know anything about anything. And you're trying to establish some common ground and to tell them the truth. That's what you're attempting to do, and the whole time you're doing that, There's this girl following you around yelling. And she's saying, these are servants of the Most High God, and they're here to tell you the way to be saved. And you may say, well, that's good. That's what they were doing. She's like the MC. She's getting everybody together. It's it's not. This is a demonic spirit. Demons don't want people to hear about Jesus. Demons don't want people to respond to the gospel. She was not helping at all. She was muddying the waters. Your, your Bible may say Paul was grieved or he was frustrated or he was annoyed or he was troubled. What's underlying all of those words is this idea of being distracted, of being frustrated because you're distracted. And that's what this girl was doing. She was distracting them. The demon was doing this through her. It was a distraction. That phrase, the most high God, was used by Gentiles to refer to Zeus. And so these guys, these Philippians who don't know anything about anything are hearing Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy talk to them about this new God they've never known, Yahweh, and about his son Jesus and Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and what that means for them in terms of being saved. And the whole time this girl who they think is, is gifted, this girl who they think, hey, she can predict the future, so what she says carries some weight, is saying these are, these are servants of the Most High God. What they're hearing is, oh, they're servants of Zeus. Yeah, we know him. They're talking about Zeus and, and how Zeus wants to work in our life or how we respond to Zeus. Completely confusing, muddying the waters. So day after day, she does that. And finally, Paul says, enough's enough, we're done. And he casts the spirit out of her. And so now she's actually free. And her owners are mad. They didn't care about her. They just cared about the fact that they could make money off of her. That they could have people come and, and pay them for her to predict their future. And now that that's no longer uh, available to them, they get upset. And so they go to the magistrates. 
Paul, Timothy and Luke, excuse me, Timothy and Luke drop out of the picture. We don't know what happens to them. After verse 17, they're gone. Paul and Silas are accused of causing a disturbance. In these Roman colonies, that's the worst thing you could be accused of, was causing, being a public nuisance, somehow causing a disturbance. And they say, these owners say, that's what they're doing. They're causing an uproar in our town. And so Paul and Silas are taken, they're stripped, they're beaten with rods. Are these guys, these Roman uh, officials, their guards are called lictors, L-I-C-H-T-O-R-S. And their job was just, well, they beat people, and they beat people with these sticks. It wasn't a whip, like when you're thinking about with Jesus. It's not it. They were beat with one of those rods that those guys were holding. If, a Jew, if you were whipped by the Jewish authorities, they only hit you 39 times because you were only allowed to hit 40, according to the Old Testament. And so they did 39, just in case they miscounted. The Romans didn't have that. They just beat you till they were tired. And so they beat him with those things, and then they put him in stocks. Those guys don't look very happy, but that's what a stock is. So their legs were fastened, most likely, to a wall, so they couldn't leave. So the whole thing is, they're, they're beaten severely, and then they're put in the innermost prison, so they can't get out. So that's the status for Paul and Silas at this point again. Timothy and Luke have left the scene. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his household. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them all. And then they left. So we have Paul and Silas beaten severely in stocks in the inner cell, praying and singing. There are other prisoners there who are listening. The jailer goes to sleep. About midnight, there's an earthquake, and it's, it's miraculous. It's divine. It's God. He's shaking this place. All of the doors open. All of the chains fall off of these guys. The jailer is awakened by the earthquake, and he goes to see what's happening. He sees the doors open, and so his assumption is the prisoners have escaped, like they've left. That's what prisoners do if the doors are thrown open. They don't stay. And in this world, the jailer is responsible for the prisoners. So if the prisoners escape, the jailer is going to be beaten and maybe killed. And so he's thinking, I'm just going to cut to the chase here, and I'm just going to kill myself. 
so I don't have to be tortured. And Paul says, wait, don't do anything. We're all still here. You think about that. So there, it's not just Paul and Silas. Maybe we can understand why they're still there. But all of the prisoners are still there. There's something about Paul and Silas that's captivated these other prisoners. And so they stay as well. And they say to the jailer, you don't have to kill yourself. We're all still here. And the jailer's blown away. And so he goes to Paul and Silas and he brings them out of this inner cell. And he says, y'all have to tell me how to be saved. How do I get on your team? How do I, I want what you have. So imagine you're the jailer. So you've seen Paul and Silas bloodied and bruised. They've been worked over by these rods from these Roman soldiers. They've been thrown in jail, and their response is prayer and worship. That's what they've been doing since they've been thrown in jail after they've been severely beaten. They've been praying, and they've been worshiping. And then at midnight, their God answers their prayers by sending an earthquake and opening up every door to the prison and dropping every shackle that's on everyone. But rather than escaping, Paul and Silas stay. You're the jailer, and you're going, what, what kind of God do you serve? He's powerful enough to shake the earth and deliver you And he inspires something in you to the degree that you're willing to forego your own freedom. The doors are open. The chains have fallen off. You can walk out of jail. And rather than doing that, you choose to stay. Who does that? What kind of God inspires that level of selflessness, sacrifice, compassion in Another, what kind of God, after you've been beaten and thrown in jail, do you continue to love with the depth that says, I'm going to pray and worship? And the jailer says, I want, I want to know him. And Paul says, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. It's that simple. That's all it takes to be saved. Believing in Jesus. That's the only requirement. That's the, that's the only, it's, it's only condition. Just believe in Jesus. Now, when we hear that word believe, a lot of times in our minds, we think, think. To believe is to think. If I believe something, then I intellectually or mentally say that thing is true. That is not the New Testament understanding of that word believe. The New Testament understanding of believe is trust. You're not saved by what you know. You're saved by whom you're trusting in. Very different. We're not saved by information, and we're not saved by knowledge. We're saved by faith. And so when, for many of us, when we hear believe, again, we think, think. I believe that those chairs can hold me up. That is not New Testament understanding. In the New Testament, it's to say, I believe these chairs can hold me up. Very different. I'm acting on this at this point. I'm acting on what I know to be true. I'm actually standing on the chairs. You see the difference? This is for many of us, I believe. Yeah, I think this. Not New Testament. We're not saved by what we think. This is New Testament. When Paul says believe in Jesus, this is what he means. Stand on the chair. If you're not standing on the chair, then you're not saved. You're not putting your trust, your faith, in him. You haven't wrapped your life around what it means for him 
to be the Lord. You see the difference between those two things. So for us, when we see, when we read, believe on the Lord Jesus, I don't want you hearing, think the right things about him. Develop the, the, the correct concepts. Get the, get the right understanding. Uh, that's all good. But it's just insufficient. Ultimately, what God wants to know is, do you trust me? That's what it means to believe in me. It means to trust me. Do you trust me? Are you willing to base your life on the reality that Jesus is the Lord? And then everything that that means. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord? At a minimum, it means he's the boss and I do what he says. If nothing else, that's what it means. And so for me, for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to recognize his mastery, his lordship, his rulership in my life. And to follow him. So anyway, we'll move on. So the jailer says, I'm in. And at some point, he grabs all of his family, his whole household, the servants, the kids, his wife. They all come. And they all hear the gospel. And they all say, we're in. So they're all baptized that night as a public outward sign that we're in. We believe and we're following Jesus. And they bring Paul and Silas into this house and they take care of all of the wounds where they've been beaten and they feed them. And the next day, the jailer says, I got great news. The magistrates have said, y'all can go. You're cut loose. You're free. And Paul says, no, no, we're not doing that. They publicly beat us and they publicly threw us in jail. They're going to publicly exonerate us. And Paul's not doing it out of pride. He's not doing it for himself. You've got a church that maybe is just weeks old. It is baby, 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 baby. And the believers in that church are baby, 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 babies. They don't know anything. They've just been introduced to Jesus. They've just said yes to him. They're so young in their faith. And what I think for their sake, Paul is saying, I want them to know that you leaders made a mistake. I want this young church and these new Christians, I want them to know publicly that y'all messed up when you arrested us and you had us beaten. Now, Paul is saying, I'm a Roman citizen and so is Silas. And so the magistrates, they, they can get in trouble. You can't beat a Roman citizen and you can't throw them in jail without a trial. And so they're nervous that they're going to get in trouble. And so they're more than happy to do what Paul wants But for Paul, again, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with him. It has nothing to do with Silas, nothing to do with their egos. And I think it has everything to do with this church that's just been formed and Paul's desire to make sure they know that they're not, that that these new Christians know they're not following a bunch of outlaws. That Paul and Silas didn't do anything wrong. I think maybe even secondarily, it's, it's helpful for the city as a whole. People who haven't yet said yes to the gospel for them to know hey, this is not an outlaw group. This is not an outlaw faith. You can say yes to the gospel. So that's what Paul is doing, and that's, then he leaves. He goes to Lydia's house. He checks on the church. He makes sure everybody's okay, and then he leaves. I was reading that. The thing that jumped out at me the most, you may have pulled out something else, was the way Paul and Silas responded to suffering. So they're beaten severely. They're thrown in jail, and their response is prayer in worship. That's what they do. I don't know if that's my response in suffering. I, I especially don't know if that's my first response in suffering. 
Now, if you remember, if you remember last week or if you weren't here, you can go back and read the beginning of chapter 16. The reason Paul and Silas are in this jail is because an, God spoke to Paul in a dream. It says he had a vision, but it was at night, so maybe it was a dream, maybe it was a vision. A man from Macedonia, that's the region where Philippi is, shows up to Paul and begs, that's the word, begs him, come help us. And Paul says, okay, that's God talking to me. We need to go to Philippi because this man appeared to me in a vision. He was from Macedonia, and he said, you've got to come help us. So they go to the, the major city in Macedonia, which is Philippi. Now, if it's me, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm, I'm obeying God. God wants me to go here, and I'm going here. I'm doing what he wants me to do. If you go back and read the beginning of chapter 16, there are several places Paul wanted to go, and God said, no, you can't go. You can't go into this country, and you can't go into this country. This is where I want you. So Paul is saying, I'm, I've, I've subjected my will to your will. I'm going into this place that you've called me to go. That's what, again, I'm thinking. So I'm doing this out of obedience. And my reward is I get the fool beat out of me for preaching the gospel, and I get thrown in jail. Yay, obedience. That's not what Paul does. Paul prays, and he praises. He doesn't get upset. He's not saying, God, what are you doing? Why did you abandon me? Why did you let this happen? He's not doing any of that stuff. Prayer and worship. And then when he has an opportunity to leave, he doesn't. He knows what it means for that jailer. Paul is a Roman citizen. He knows if we leave, that guy's going to pay the price. And he's not a Christian. So we're going to wait. and We're going to give this guy an opportunity to respond. You think about that. In the midst of unjust suffering, the way Paul and Silas respond. You can draw a, a connection, a, a straight line between Paul and Silas's behavior, their response to suffering, and the salvation of this jailer and his family. That guy became a Christian because of what Paul and Silas did in jail, because of their response to being beaten and thrown in jail. We said at the beginning, we've said this for months, this idea of being witnesses. It runs all through Acts. And that is God's call for all of us. We talk about doing your deal. That's just a, a specific, personalized, individualized way of being a witness. It's the way you're going to be a witness. Or if you like Matthew 28 better, it's going to be the way you make disciples of all nations. That's, that's it for you. But for all of us, the, the stamp, the call, is to be a witness. And I don't know how that sits for you. I don't know if that makes you feel guilty. I don't know if it makes you feel burdened. I don't know if you feel like I'm not a public speaker. If that's what it means to be a witness, I'm out. I can't do that. I don't know if we, you know, we read through Acts and there are all these miracles associated with preaching the gospel. And if you're going, that's not me. I've never experienced a miracle. I can't imagine walking up to someone who's in a wheelchair and saying, get up. I just, I can't fathom being in a spot where I'm doing any of those things. I don't know the Bible well enough. And so I, I don't know. Maybe the idea of being a witness energizes you and focuses you, and it's great. But I wonder for many of us if it winds up, if it weighs us down a little bit, if we, we find it to be a bit, uh, it's heavy for some of us. And I don't want you thinking that way. I should have recognized that God wants you to be a witness according to how he's formed you and made you and knit you together. That's Psalm 139. He formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb, and he knows that. He knows if you're an introvert or an extrovert. He knows that about you. He knows if you're comfortable speaking in front of groups or, or not. He knows that. He knows all of that. It doesn't mean that we don't grow and we don't stretch. But God made you you. If he wanted you to be different, he'd have made you different. And according to that Psalm 139, you can be a witness. 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, not in your own strength, empowered by the Holy Spirit according to your uniqueness. God wants you to be a witness. You may never stand up in front of people in a public way, and that's okay. You may never pull anybody up out of a wheelchair. That's okay. One of the things that we're all guaranteed, just as a course living life, we're all going to suffer. And when you suffer, I want you to recognize that's an opportunity for you to be a witness. That's something all of us will endure at some point. For many of us, it'll be unjust. It it won't be suffering that's brought about by our own bad choices. It'll be suffering because we live in a fallen world. It'll be suffering because of the sins of others. It'll be suffering because we have an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. That will be the, the root of our suffering. And in the midst of that, your response can lead to somebody else's salvation. It's a way that you witness. And it will be in accordance with how God has formed you and knit you together. And the things I want to encourage you to do in the midst of suffering are to rejoice and to find contentment. Those are the two things Paul talks about. He writes a letter to this church, the Philippian church. He writes them a letter maybe 12 or 13 years after he leaves. We saw him leave. He's actually in jail again when he writes the letter. And at the very end of the letter, he's saying to them, you're going to experience difficulties, and here's how I want you to respond. I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Not I want you to rejoice in your suffering. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. You think about, we live in a world where people say, how can an all-loving, how can an all-powerful, how can an all-knowing God allow this fill-in-the-blank to happen? Your response when that's happening to you is a witness. It's what it was for Paul and Silas. The fact that they chose to pray and worship when they were experiencing unjust suffering makes this jailer go, What's go- what? who is that God? How does that God, ex- how does he provoke that kind of devotion? How does he inspire that kind of love? In people, your response, I want you to hear that as pressure, but as opportunity. We're all going to suffer at some point, and our behavior, our response to it, can lead to the blessing and the salvation of other people if we rejoice. Again, it's not rejoicing in our circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Your circumstances become irrelevant. Rejoicing is an action, it's not a feeling. It's saying, I'm going to choose. To worship God in the midst of circumstances that I find disagreeable, terrible, whatever adjective you want to use. God is still who he is. He's still good. He's still kind. He's still compassionate. He's still powerful. He's still holy. He's still majestic. He's still all of those things. And so I'm going to choose, rather than focusing on my circumstances, to rejoice, to worship him for who he is. Because that's really what worship is. Worship is giving God what God deserves. And God deserves it regardless of our circumstances because he's still the same. Does that make sense? So for me, the easiest way to rejoice is is music. may not be the case for you. That's not the case for you. You can read Psalms. There's tons of places in Psalms, lots of them, where the author, whether it's David or someone else, is really going through a bad time. And he makes a choice intentionally to rejoice. And you can read the Psalms, and that may be all it takes. That may inspire you and stir you. For me, music helps a ton. And that, if that's the case for you, but you don't know really know how to grab onto that, send Bo an email, and he can he'll be more than happy to help send you songs and help you grab on 
to some worship music so you can rejoice. That may not, again, that may not be for you, but for me, it's very practical. If the only, in my opinion, if the only time you're worshiping is once a week on Sunday, you're missing something pretty significant in your Christian life. So, again, don't hear that as guilt, but you're miss, in my opinion, you're missing something if that's the only time that you're engaging in worship. And I would encourage you to try to figure out how to incorporate worship more regularly into your private time, once a week, twice a week, something like that, and Bo can help you. But it's a great way of rejoicing in your circumstances. So some of you are suffering. You haven't been beaten with rods. You're not in stocks and you're not in jail physically. But maybe in some other ways you are. Can you rejoice this morning? Can you make a choice this morning to worship and praise God according to his character, not according to your circumstances? Second thing Paul says is, I've figured out the secret of being content in any circumstance. I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to be well-fed. I know what it's like to, be, to have a lot, and I know what it's like to have a little. And I've figured out the secret in all of those circumstances, in any circumstance, the secret to being content, the most quoted verse in the Bible behind John 3.16 is this one. I know the secret to being content is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When you see that verse, a lot of times you see that being used of, uh, from athletes. It's like, I can do all things. I can dunk because Christ gives me strength. Or I can get a hat trick because that's fine. That's fine. But that's not, it's not where it is in the Bible. It has nothing to do with athletics or accomplishments. It has to do with contentment when your circumstances are terrible. That's what it has to do with. God can help you with those other things as well. That's fine. But this verse in this context is saying, Paul is saying, I figured out the secret to being content. That is not wanting. I figured out the secret to say, whether I have a lot or a little, whether I'm hungry or well-fed, whether I'm warm or whether I'm cold, whether I have a house or whether I'm homeless, I figured out the secret of being content. And the secret is Jesus. He enables me. He strengthens me. He's sufficient for me. That word content, underlying that's the idea of sufficiency. I have everything that I need, so I don't want any more. I don't have to covet because I've got everything that I need. And what Paul is saying is the secret to that sense of sufficiency is connection to Jesus. So if rejoicing ties back into singing praises, to me, contentment ties back into prayer. It's staying connected. It's abiding. It's a recognition that in Jesus... Because of Jesus, through Jesus, everything that I need. Does that make sense? Whether I actually am hungry or not, Jesus enables me to be content. He enables me to be content when I'm hungry. And he enables me to be content when I'm well fed. Jesus enables me to be content when I'm hot. And he enables me to be content when I'm cold. He enables me to be content when I have a house. And he enables me to be content when I don't. He enables me to be content if I'm in jail in stocks after I've gotten beaten. And he enables me to be content when people think I'm the greatest thing in the world. Regardless of my circumstances, my connection with Jesus, he enables me to be sufficient. He enables my sufficiency. He is my sufficiency. If you can grab onto that. It's an attitude. It's not a feeling. It's a posture that says, I've got me. I don't have everything that I need because I've got him and he's everything that I need. Let's pray.
We'll pray with you about anything that you've got going on, but three groups I want to focus. One, those of you who are looking at the chair, you're not standing in it. Let today be the day. Let today be the day that you make a choice to trust Jesus. You may say, I've trusted him to forgive me of my sins. Are you trusting him to lead you in the ins and outs of your life? Are you trusting him to guide you into your future? Are you trusting him to help you engage and maintain life-giving relationships? Are you trusting him to meet your needs? We prayed about earlier. Are you standing on the chair? Are you trusting? Are you just thinking? Make a step today. Who needs joy this morning? Thinking about that, I think it's in Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I never, I don't fully grasp what that means, but part of it I was thinking about in terms of temptation when I'm joyful, I am strengthened against distraction and temptation. I'm full in that point, at that point. Maybe that's what you need. You need to make a choice this morning to rejoice and for the joy of the Lord to be your strength in the midst of suffering and struggle. You may just want to make a choice when Bo leads to worship. You may want to come forward and, and, and let us pray with you that God would stir joy in your heart. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is joy. If he's living within you, it's something that can be produced. What about contentment? Our entire economic system is based on you not being content. Everything is based on you wanting more and me wanting more. Nothing in our culture contributes to contentment. Everything speaks to more, 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 more. It's difficult to maintain contentment over time. So easy to think, when I just fill in the blank, then I will be. It's not true. It's not true at all. Contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances and everything to do with you and me recognizing the sufficiency of Jesus and our connection to him. And so if that's you this morning and you wrestle, and we all do, again, because all, all day, every day, we're bombarded with messages that say it's not enough, you're not enough, you don't have enough, there's better, there's more, there's new. If you want prayer this morning about grounding yourself at your core, that you can do all things. That is, you can be content in any situation because Jesus is with you and he will enable you. He will strengthen you to do that. We'd love to pray with you about that. So, God, my prayer, wherever we are, everybody somewhere, is that you would meet us where we are this morning, that we would open our hearts to you, and maybe you want to just say that in your own mind if you're willing. God, I open my heart to you. What do you want to get at this morning? Where are you calling me out? What are you asking of me? How, how, how do I respond faithfully to what you're saying? And God, I want to pray for those who would say this morning they're suffering. God, I pray for that they would be able to rejoice. I pray that they would find contentment. And God, I pray that you would change their circumstances as well. 
that you would deliver them just like you delivered Paul and Silas. God, until you do, I do pray for joy and contentment. But God, we ask you to work in their circumstances as well. In Jesus' name.